You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 353 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to get into this week's topic, which is how to shoot amazing astrophotography, as in astronomy photography, with our guest, Michael Goh. But before we get onto that, uh, we actually have a request for a constructive critique from Jerry on the um, So You Want to Be Photographer Facebook group. Now, if you're a listener and you haven't joined the Facebook group, feel free to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's so great to see photographers and photography uh, from all walks of life and all places in the world. So it's free to join. Just um, search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. But Jerry has posted in um, the Facebook group and has said, I do work for our small town shooting events and attractions for promo online and print. I'm asking for your help and advice. I need to do a full shot of this piece of art to make it look good. Trying not to be sarcastic. (laughs) Now, Jerry's got some shots of this um, public artwork called Three Graces. And it's, um, uh, it is... (laughs) It's three, they look like wooden sticks, but maybe they're concrete. I'm not really sure, but let's, but they look like, oh, they could be metal. Yes. Yeah. And so if you imagine, uh, like an ore, so if you imagine a a very extremely, as in an ore, as in the thing that you use to paddle, you know, an ore, (laughs) paddle a boat. So if you imagine a giant ore and then um, another giant ore, but fa- um, so a giant ore with the wide side at the top, and then another giant ore, but with the wide side at the bottom, and then another giant ore, but with the wide side at the top, but in three different heights. That's this piece of artwork. Yeah. So, because, you know, this public art is very important, Val, as you yes. know, because you yes. had your giant cock featured in <laughs> Sydney and it's been seen all around the world. You it's know, it's a rooster. Yes. Same thing. Val. Yes, that's Giant right. Cock, you know, that's right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, public art for public spaces. Yes. Very important. Very important. And actually, Melbourne is. Um, a lot better than Sydney if in its public art. So you've, you know, been in that kind of environment even more so than I have. Um, I mean, you live in a city that values it probably more than my city does. Uh, yeah, so it's valid question from Jerry. How do you make an unusual piece of public art look good and the angles you would take? 
Gina, yeah, take so, it away. Oh, oh by got, the way, we, we, if you aren't in the Facebook group, we'll put this uh, these images in the show notes, which are over at ginamilitia.com if you want to check them out. Go yeah, ahead, Gina. So you've, you've described it pretty well. So you've got these uh, three kind of um, ore-shaped or like I call them little skinny pyramids as well, like triangular shape, metal and timber. But the setting is also very important because they are up against, uh, what would you call those trees? Are they like uh, pine trees, Val? What do you reckon? Because now that you're um, becoming quite the expert in gardens, now that you've... No, I'm not an expert in gardens. I just have one now. (laughs) Yeah, you've just got one. They're they're like pine or they're they're large... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, like a public garden and we've got this sculpture here and so we need – Jerry needs to take great shots. So uh, a couple of things to consider, Jerry. So what you want to do when you're working with any any uh, photo shoot is you're thinking about the time of day because light is everything. So uh, often – And a lot of uh, professional commercial photographers, when they're going to photograph a building or anything that can't be moved around that's fixed, is you need to go back and check it out at different times of the day. So if it's something that's nearby, uh, I would uh, have a look early in the morning or late afternoon because I think what would add interest if you were going to shoot this with daylight is if you went in when the sun was a bit lower in the sky so you had an opportunity to backlight uh, the sculptures. Now, the major issue is you've got these massive trees that kind of are around the sculpture and it's hard to know what's on the other side, but that's the backdrop. And if you're trying to photograph um, anything where you've got trees behind, green um, what happens with green when you're trying to photograph green is if it isn't lit, green tends to photograph as very dark or almost black. So what you want is to try and maybe look for a time when uh, you've got the backlight coming through the trees. It lights up the the trees, so that'll make the backdrop uh, nice and bright and airy. And then what I would do is use a very long lens because, and I'm talking something uh, 70, uh, a focal length of 70 millimeters or longer. So if you've got something like a 200, that's ideal. You're going to get right back from the sculpture. Using that uh, longer focal length will give you a narrow field of view. So you're basically not getting everything in the background. You're just focusing on the, uh, the sculptures themselves. And then you've got the beautiful backlight coming through the trees. Hopefully they're, and then I would get a a very shoot with a very shallow depth of field. So long lens, something like uh, f2.8 or lower if you could. And uh, so narrow field of view, shallow depth of field. So you're going to throw the background out of focus and just have this narrow shot of the tree, the sculptures. And that should give you a a nice shot and eliminate uh, too much detail in the background because it's the sculptures are the hero of this shot and you don't want a lot of detail in the background because it just becomes a hot mess for the eyes to look Mm. at this. There's too much going on. So you want to try and throw those trees out of focus. The problem is I can see the trees are very close to the sculptures. So, So that's an issue. 
The other thing that I thought of as another workaround to get a good shot of the sculptures is to use flash. So um, I would, uh, if, if you've got a, a couple of speed lights, I would shoot something like ISO uh, 100, F16 as a shutter speed, uh, sorry, F16 as your f-stop and uh, 1 200th of a second as a shutter speed. Take a shot, you should have a black frame, all right? So you've eliminated all of the ambient light and then you bring in your flash with a large modifier and light from the side, which gives you uh, nice detail across the sculptures. And then you could also backlight the sculptures. So you're lighting them basically like they're a product in the studio and that would uh, make them, uh, you know, really stand out and show off the the image really well. So that might be uh, a little bit too static for the actual, um, you know, the the people that are commissioning you to do the shot. So I think my first uh, thought would be to do it with daylight with that shallow depth of field. And if you're doing it that way, then shoot to tripod as well. Uh, and then the other thing you want to think of is post-production. And you, you, I can see that there are there is a lot of texture in the image. So you've got the timber and the metal. So you really want to show that off. So uh, if you're post-processing in something like Lightroom, texture, the texture slider is your best friend. So uh, don't be afraid to crank that up to show off the beautiful detail. And also it's about the lighting, like the side lighting that falls across will actually give those uh, sculptures like that 3D vibe. So there hopefully will be a right time of the day where you've got lovely backlight coming in or side light coming in, lighting them up. And then you, I think you need to throw the trees uh, out of focus. So yeah, it looks interesting. I, I'd rather like them, the sculptures. I'd happily yeah. have those in my um, garden, Val. Yeah. I quite like them. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. So good luck with that, Jerry. Yeah, so if you want to join the group where Jerry has posted this and you might be able to get um, some constructive critiques there as well, from especially from other members of the community. And it's such a lovely community, so um, make sure you get in there um, to find out what's going on. Now, we want to give a big shout-out to Glenn Morris, who is a member of the Gold Community. So the Gold Community is our membership, and um, Glenn has said, uh, I just joined the Gold Community and wanted to say I am thrilled in a 100% positive way to read feedback and the posts other members have done. I'm amazed for the very little cost of membership. Gina gives personal feedback. Without sounding too weird, I have to say that to have such a well-respected and knowledgeable photographer be willing to help others improve by personal tips and constructive critique is worth so much more to me than the small cost of around a dollar a day. I want to improve my skills and am confident I have found the right place. Yay, Glenn! Good on you, Glenn. Thank you. Yes. Thrilled to hear that you're getting value out of the membership um glenn very very exciting so good to have you in there and if you would like to find out a little bit more about the gold community have a listen to this this podcast is brought to you by the gold community i loved mentoring christy heard who's been a member of our gold community i've always encouraged members to pursue their own passion projects Christy started taking photos of a Brad Pitt doll to practice her lighting setups. 
but this escalated into a full-blown passion project as she started to photograph Brad in a variety of different outfits and locations. Ultimately, she created a stunning coffee table book of her images. Putting a book together is something that I've always dreamed of um, and I've actually done it and I'm incredibly proud of it and the feedback that I've got from family and friends and from the community as well, Gina, you know, it's just been amazing. Um, and it's opened quite a few doors um, and you never know where it's going to take you. Yeah, I have, um, I've had a couple of people interested in working with me. Um, one of those people is a fashion house in Paris. It's amazing. Called... I know. <laughs> when I'm speaking it, I'm like, really? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so there's, there's a fashion house in Paris called uh, Lords and Fools and they create um, fashion for men and women which is inspired by um, military. So they, they're very regal, they've got a lot of, um, you know, great looking outfits that they create and um, they created John Bon Jovi's waistcoat that he's currently wearing on stage. If you'd like to find out more about the gold community, head to ginamilitia.com and click on Memberships. All right, let's move on to this week's topic, how to shoot amazing astrophotography with guest Michael Go. Tell us what's, what's this all about, Gina? All right, I am super excited to chat with astrophotographer Michael Go. Michael is an absolute master at his craft and mm. I think like when we do these photography interviews like I, I really encourage you to have a look at the work uh, before you hear the interview because then you can you know imagine the work that we're talking about I just think it's a, a great thing to do and even if you just uh, go and check out his Instagram which is um, astro photo bear so that's a s t r o P-H-O-T-O-B-E-A-R. All the links are in the show notes to his website, Instagram, Twitter. Have a look at his work. It is, I don't, like, you hear the word awesome used a lot. And, you know, when it comes to the, the images that he captures, his astrophotography, it is it is awesome. So I absolutely have so much respect because this is like you can't just hack this kind of photography out. It's mm. so highly skilled. And um, it, this is the second time uh, now that I've spoken to Michael. So he was uh, chatted with us back a uh, few episodes ago. I think it was... Not um, a few episodes ago, like uh, a few years a ago. Few, like <laughs> many, many years ago. But but um, what I'm really thrilled and not the least bit surprised to discover is in the time that we last spoke, uh, he, he was, when we first spoke, he was uh, working full-time in the finance sector and now he's left his corporate sponsor and he works full-time as a commercial business event and astrophotographer and he's absolutely killing it. So he's Fantastic. super busy. He currently has, get this, about 100 projects on the go. So wow. he's won multiple awards uh, and so including uh, AstroFest, which is uh, Western Australia's astronomy 
and astrophotography competition. He's won uh, International Photo Nightscape Awards and uh, his images, get this, have appeared twice in Astronomy Picture of the Day operated by NASA. How cool is that? And his work is also being featured in documentary, the uh, West Australian Museum, uh, the Museum, Australian Geographic, books and also Tourism Australia, the Western Australian Opera, uh, the Australian Newspaper and a ton of other publications. So he's also a brand ambassador for Skywatcher, uh, which is uh, telescope and astronomy equipment. Good, good, good pairing there. And uh, Topaz, which is a photo editing software. So his work is brilliant. I'm really excited. We we cover a whole lot of things. I I delve into like what that transition was like for him leaving the corporate sponsor and moving into full-time work and uh, how he actually did that and getting his break into the commercial photography world, how he promotes his work on uh, on LinkedIn uh, and uh, we go into uh, the world of time-lapse time-lapse photography which is time-lapse photography is absolutely beautiful and this is uh, an area that I think all photographers should start to get into because it's very very lucrative and uh, all the uh, important bits about the equipment that he uses he walks us through how to how how to do a basic time-lapse if you're just a beginner and he also walks us through if you are a beginner and you want to get into the world of astro how, how you can do it with minimum of equipment and also how he creates his amazing shots, scouting locations and tons more. So I'm really excited to bring you this interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. Michael Go, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Gina. I'm fantastic at the moment, or still alive, depending on how you look at it, because, yeah, otherwise it might be an interesting sort of conversation otherwise. Well, speaking to you from the other side would be probably a first in podcasting, but I should say, I said, uh, I should say welcome back because I think uh, we chatted uh, about four or five years ago and or maybe three my math isn't my strong point but you were one of my uh first interview guests so i'm thrilled to have you back and i've seen you've been out there doing lots of amazing stuff but before we start i always ask my guests where in the world are you okay i'm situated in perth western australia and you you were there last time we chatted, but like so, just for listeners who are not familiar with what you do, can you describe what exactly astrophotography is? Okay, astrophotography generally well, there's different bands of astrophotography, uh, but generally speaking, astrophotography is photographing space, yep, or stars, or or it it can actually be a lot. It's. I think last time we actually said that yourself photographing the sun is astrophotography, and we might even get to that later on, right. actually, because there's actually a project on, on which requires me to photograph the sun. Wow. And so since we last spoke, uh, what's been happening in the photography world for you? Okay. The uh, Since we last spoke, I suppose last time my corporate sponsor was actually my finance side of things because I was also a finance broker. Uh-huh. Uh, I've actually decided to give that up completely because I'm just too busy as a photographer now. Right. 
so uh, last That's a shame. Year, I was going to get hit you up for some advice, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know plenty of other, other people, and I like I like keeping in touch with what's happening because. Also, when you're doing commercial photography, it helps to know what's happening with businesses yep. as well. Yeah. But uh, since we last spoke, I suppose I did a few pivots, actually. Yeah. Uh, so in a roundabout sort of way, my corporate sponsorship now is actually all the other forms of photography. So your commercial photography, your event photography, all that is actually helping to sponsor the astrophotography side of things, which is actually growing larger and larger in terms of my, I suppose, my time allocation in, in what I do for work. So I, I actually pivoted a couple of years ago to focus even more on the astrophotography. So it did, I did actually take a, quite a bit of a hit in terms of the business mm. to say no to the things which were not leading me to, I suppose, the core reasons of why I'm in business and how I can help other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was photographing more of the night sky and then I've actually been engaged in a few documentaries on astronomy in, in Western Australia. Amazing. And I've also photographed for, I uh, got contracted by the WA Museum to to create some time lapses for one of their permanent displays as well. How exciting. And so let's just go back a couple of steps. So like when we last spoke, you, you were, uh, you had a full-time job, the corporate sponsor. And so weekends, evenings, and it was like kind of more, um, hobby-based photography but you were did you always have the intention of uh growing that business and leaving the corporate sponsor behind was that always your intention or is it something that you just one day said hey I know I can do this I'm gonna let this this uh, other job go and how was that uh decision making uh what was that what did that look like for you was it a spur of the moment thing or did it take you a while to just say no i think i can do this um i think it was an interesting one because before we spoke i was actually a bank manager mm. and then i quit working in the bank because it was either because of my hours working up to about getting close to your 70 hours a week sort of thing again and i've i've been there before and i said i i'll either stay with photography and give up the fine the uh, working in the bank, or I have to give up, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I basically took a, a bit of a, a compromise move, and I basically moved into being a commercial finance broker, right. which was self-employed, and a photographer, so I could do both. Right. But in the first year of self-employment, I ended up doing about 90% finance, 10% photography. Yep. I said, well, I might as well have stayed in the bank at that point of time. And then so I tried to even it out and then went to 90% photography, 10% finance. And then the fi the finance side of things has just basically drifted away because I've just been a little bit too busy. I know it sounds terrible. <laughs> a little bit too busy photographing. That's, that's fantastic. Um, but okay, so when you went from, when you were at the 10% photography, 90% finance, was there any time during that period where you said, it's, this is not going to work or did you get discouraged or what kept you going to say, you know, I've, I've got this, let me, let me keep going? And second part of the question, what kind of jobs were you picking up to get up to that, you know, 90, 10, 90 photography, 10 mm. finance? Um, I and don't think what's there the was... best interest rate you can get me at the moment? Yeah. 
<laughs> the, uh, I don't think there was any really a time where I said, no, this is this is wrong, except for, except for the balance side of things. So I actually thought I could do both at the same time, but it's difficult focusing on too many businesses at the same time, mm. I found, especially since I think last year I was, I was up in Exmouth, which is about 10 hours drive north of where I am here in Perth. Mm. And then I had all these calls coming in. I said, I can't help you. I'm actually in the middle of... of I'm, I'm nine hours out at the moment. I can't help you within the time frame that you want. Yeah. Um, and but but before then, when I was swapping it over between uh, pushing out to do more of the photography side, I was doing a lot more in the uh, business event photography. Right. Uh, and I do that because the I suppose that's my version of networking is actually with business yes. photography. Because you you meet so many businesses and then you you in terms of your business networking and then it just expands who wants to use you to photograph, without even pitching actively for it. People go, oh, I love your images, uh, uh, and they want to hire me for almost anything. Okay, so when they say they love your images, how are they seeing you, the the images? How, what 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 is your definition of marketing? Are you the kind of person that? Uh, attracts clients as in you're putting out great work and they're seeing it or are you actively chasing clients what's what's your preference um it's actually my preference to be chasing some clients but to be honest i haven't actually ever excellent so <laughs> the, i love uh, to hear this music the, to my ears the i mean i, I do actually have a, a list of say uh I've always had the idea of saying, hey, I want to have a list of, say, top 20 target industries and clients that I want to work with. Mm. So, And I just start moving myself in that direction. So as a strategic business plan saying, hey, I want to be doing more of this, but I've actually been quite fortunate that just being me, I've actually attracted quite a few of those clients to me anyway. Uh, and the other forms of clients which I've been attracting is because I do business event photography and because they see it on places like especially places like linkedin mm. uh then they see the they say hey i look good and i or i love the photography that comes out of it then that's actually attracted other forms of photography and when i i actually talk to people about what i do as well and they as soon as they see the astrophotography mm. images to be honest I, I think everyone seems to think i can do almost anything <laughs> yeah because th so. that's that's the thing um that a client, unless you're at, um, unless you're dealing with a specific uh, genre of photography, like you know, a like a truck company that want their trucks photographed, they know that that need they need to hire a specialist. But generally, businesses just will look at your photos. Oh, you do great headshots. You do great astro. Do you want to now photograph? You know. Uh, this band that I know because you'll be able to do that, right? That's the kind of the thinking, how, how it works. Is that what you found? Uh, yeah, pretty much, I think. Yeah. I mean, there, there's been plenty of jobs I've turned away yes. as well, saying, look, that's, I mean, while I can do it, um, I know people who will do it better because I find also, if, I think in that next year when I swapped to Ninevison photography, I was started just trying to catch everything. And then if you're trying to catch everything, mm. then you go, well, and then the year later or two years later, you go, well, I'm no further along to my strategic direction. Yes. Then all of a sudden I'm I'm not doing the astrophotography stuff, which is where I suppose the greatest benefit of me being here is. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very uh, dangerous and commonplace that uh, photographers that are, are growing the business, like you'll get all this work thrown at you and often uh, it's it's yes to everything because you're thinking, well, I don't know, like, you know, is there, is there, you know there's nothing in three months' time, I need to pay the rent, I should do this uh, wedding or this corporate gig and then that, and then it ends up exactly as you say, you kind of dilute the uh, the pool of work that you're doing and you become the everything photographer and you don't have the time to specialise. And I think so. I think that's a really wise move in um, – in saying no, as hard as hard as that is to do when you start, when you you know growing that business. Mm, yeah, definitely, because you can go, oh, hang on, where's all my money gone? Exactly. <laughs> sudden, then you, you you sometimes do need to accept a few jobs here and there to actually make sure your cash flow is still going. Yeah. But then if you then you might all of a sudden, however, say, hey, I'm catching all these five hundred dollar jobs or one thousand dollar jobs, when all of a sudden you when you're focusing on what your true niche is, yes. then you are actually doing more like your tens of thousands exactly. of dollar jobs instead. And that's the beauty, Not that I it's guess. about the money. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> but this is the beauty and the big difference between being, uh, say, a portrait photographer where often uh, in that niche you're trying to do uh, volume to get that, to make that sort of money. When, when you can uh, land those big commercial jobs, you know, you can do one or two a month and do very, very well. So that's that's kind of the big difference. Um, I just wanted to go back to the LinkedIn, working with LinkedIn. That, I think, is one of the most underutilized uh, methods of promoting yourself as a photographer It's because it, it, you really do stand out, right? So you've had great success using LinkedIn, right? Uh, yes. Initially, it was uh, just putting up the business events I was photographing, uh -huh. but then I was thinking, no, hang on. If you want to actually say what you do, you actually need to be putting what your main things are, what you do. So I've been putting up some astro stuff as well, mm. that uh, basically, and some educational things about the astrophotography. Yes. And the and it just it tends to blow up a lot more, and people at these business networks will actually come up to me and say. Saw your stuff, absolutely loving it. It's <laughs> a great talking so. point, isn't it? Because it's like mm. so few people do it at the level that you're doing this sort of work. And it's, it is, it's, uh, I know that word awesome is overused, but the universe is literally awesome. <laughs> so, of course, people are going to come up to you and, and uh, talk about that. And, it's a, and I think I love the way you do share those posts and also share, I guess, uh, the the science behind everything, right? You 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 love to geek out about these images. Mm, yes, <laughs> and I, I think over the last few years as well, especially working with the documentaries and the museum jobs and so on as well, it's actually given me more of an appreciation about what's there as opposed to just taking nice photos as well. Yeah. So learning a bit more about the Aboriginal astronomy side of things, not that I can actually talk because it's their story yeah. <laughs> and also learning a bit more about the astronomy side itself is actually giving me much more of, of an appreciation of the night sky as well. Okay, so we're, we're going to dive uh, a bit more deeply into the night sky but just I just want to come back to these business events. Uh, for listeners who aren't sure what, what photographing a business event involves, you want to just like walk us through what, like what, what a typical business event uh, involves for you? 
okay, there, there's going to be a, a different, several different sorts involved. Mm-hmm. So there's the, your typical sort of, say, business networking sundowners or business networking events where you will actually, I suppose, photograph the a little bit of the setup uh, and then you photograph people mingling and you uh, and you get your a few of your, I suppose, can I take a photo sort of photographs mm-hmm. and then you get a lot of your candid photographs and then you might have business speakers as well where you will be photographing business speakers or doing video as well for business speakers. Uh, and then it's also turning it around in a very quick yes. time frame. Usually that night, as, isn't it, or at the yes. same time, yeah. So I think I photographed one last week, which was actually, while it was a business networking one, it was actually, uh, it was for a charity and I turned it around within, I think, three hours. Fantastic, I think. yeah. And, and, and it's sort of in terms of um, uh, doing that sort of work, uh, did you start out as a, um, did you start out shooting uh, like, for different companies or did you do the work uh, on spec and just say, hey, I want to break into the business of photography, business photography, I'll do this shoot uh, on spec and then go from there? Um, No, I think it was because with the business network events and so on, it was actually just saying to the business association, uh, uh, say, it's not just business associations I photograph with, but they just... I just said to them, hey, would you like some photos taken? And they said, sure. Mm. And it just kind of, all of a sudden, it, uh, there's some which are very disappointed when I don't turn up. All right. Because <laughs> you can't turn up to everything. So, so were you showing and up then, and, and were you charging them or were you showing up and saying, I'm just going to turn up, learn the craft for a few, and then I'm going to start charging? It, it's a bit of a mixture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to be careful for the ones which aren't getting charged versus the ones being mm-hmm. that do get charged because the, the ones that do get charged, like, hey, why aren't I being charged? Right, right, right. <laughs> the, um, but then um, I suppose it's also because the, the business associations, for example, are not-for-profits and so on as uh-huh. well. That, I mean, while I do actually have a not-for-profit rate, it's ultimately then people within those associations I get booked for other business events which yeah. are not necessarily, uh, I suppose, business associations or not-for-profits. Because that's a great so thing. just expanded from there. So initially it was also because I'm a li- while I used to be a bank manager and used to be quite confident going around talking to people, is that I'm still pretty much frightened of people is probably the best <laughs> description. So it, are, it's are you shy because, or are you introverted? Um, a little bit of both. Right. Um, so having a camera is basically like my, my comfort blanket. I agree. And I find that it's actually quite funny because you can enter almost any conversation because you drift just drift in and say, can I take a photograph? And you just stay there. And then you say when, when you want to move on, I'm going to take a photograph of someone else now. So how does networking look for you at one of these uh, events? Is it like you're going to let your work speak for yourself or for itself or are you going around and saying, Hey, I'm Michael. I'm a this like here's my card. How are you networking? Okay, probably ninety percent of it is actually letting the work speak for mm. itself, and then people start contacting me afterwards. But what happens as well is that if you, another great thing with the photographing the the business events is that frequently I will know who's there beforehand, so it will actually be working out who do I strategically want to connect mm. with. 
and then also because if you think okay this person may know this or this is the where i want to head in that direction then you make sure you you go have a chat with those people in the meantime as well that is very strategic i never did that i i didn't i didn't think to do that i stumbled my way through which i think uh, I guess it depends on the personality that you are. For me, it was like the less I know about someone, the easier it is for me to talk to them. Mm. And then if I find out that and, – and I'll be chatting and they'll go, oh, yeah, I'm the CEO of 15 different companies. I go, that's great. <laughs> I wouldn't have walked up to you if I knew that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, But th that's fantastic uh, that you can get in there and let the work uh, – you know, stand for itself and uh, then you're, you're starting to get all this other work. So there's headshots, other events, and you grow from there and now you've gone to completely self-funding your uh, hmm. astrophotography with other photography. Is there other work that you're doing aside from business events and, and profile images? Well, I do, I do also photograph other parts of businesses. I do some time-lapsing. Mm -hmm. So I've... I've I, apart from the astrophotography time lapsing, I also do, I've done some commercial property time lapsing oh, before fantastic. as well. So it's very interesting watching the buildings pop up, that sort of thing. So, oh, so you're doing those timed, like a timed build where you'll set a camera up and and watch the uh, t take regular images of the build. Yes. And the fit out. So, so do you do them for events as well, like when people are holding um, you know, food shows and you know. Um, trade events have you done those where you photograph the build? yeah time lapse um i've i've time lapsed a few business events before yeah. it can be quite funny yeah. or sometimes people don't move because they hang around the bar and they just don't move <laughs> after that <laughs> so so that that doesn't look so interesting but i might do some video for that side of things instead but the um uh, i also do some aerial things I've, I've done a few I suppose when you say like the commercial photography side of things tends to be very broad in what you end up photographing. Yep. So you might be doing anything from your food photography to your, uh, I suppose, product photography or your commercial property. Yep. Things uh, could be almost anything basically. But it all relates back to everything, well, aside from the business events, but the, mm. like the time lapse came from the work that you did out in the field with the astrophotography. Mm. So let's get in. Let's, yep. let's do a deep dive. I just wanted to um, just uh, point out where you've been in the last few years and congratulations on your success. That's, uh, that all sounds amazing. So the astrophotography, what, what was it that got you interested in astro in the first place? Are you always one of those kids that like was fascinated by the moon and the stars? Um, I think it was actually probably more interested in science fiction initially uh -huh. before, rather than being interested in the stars. So I actually did see Star Wars in the cinemas back in 1977, yep. I think it was. 77 or 78. I can't quite remember which one it was. Um the uh, so I've been very interested uh, was very interested at that point of time. I did when I was a, uh, a lot younger. I did want to be an astronaut mm -hmm. without knowing anything about what was involved with being an astronaut. Of course, the uh, and then I only picked up my first DSLR maybe about eleven years ago. I think it was now, um, and it was it. And that was after a trip across Australia and just wanting better uh, family photos. Mm. And then it just kind of 
spiraled out of control, I, I guess, is probably the best description. <laughs> Even my first long exposure wasn't a, a pure accident. Because <laughs> I thought, oh, I'll try this aperture priority mode. <laughs> and oh, look, it's a 30-second exposure. Right. Interesting. And then it, and then it was, uh, I, I did time, uh, it was at Star Trails from the Backyard. And then it, it went out to uh, a first Milky Way shot by the side of the road, probably about 60 kilometres north of where I am. Yeah. You're, you're very lucky to live with where you are, though, because I think in, in terms of locations around the world, are you in a great spot to, to photograph stars, astro? Oh, absolutely, because we've got so – there's so much space, pardon the pun – Everywhere, I guess, mm. is that the uh, there's a lot of very dark locations here in Western Australia and probably Australia wide. And I mean the and on top of that, the Milky Way in the southern hemisphere behaves in a particular way. It's difficult personifying it by saying it behaves, uh, whereby it's not. It's quite different between the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere. Right. Is that the the Milky Way core, which is the uh, uh, part where everyone loves to photograph um, rises up into the sky and then it flips over and then from the south it rises from the southeast goes up into the sky to the zenith which is straight up and then sets to the west and in the northern hemisphere it doesn't do that it basically typically hangs around the horizon so, so you can get a cleaner shot is that right yes right because ultimately the higher it up the stars are from the horizon the less in atmospheric interference it has so it actually ends up being clearer and what's more is that we have it during the best time for us for the milky way is actually during winter where it where it's cooler and cold uh-huh. whereas uh so therefore and that's actually provides for clearer conditions as well to photograph the stars right so you you know a beautiful part of the world to do that and i guess like when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, because you often are like, and I, we were having a little chat off air about how last year during lockdown you were working on some projects where you were out um, there and because there was no one around because no tourists, no one around. What goes on? What are you thinking when you're looking up, up into the sky and you're seeing, you know, millions, billions of stars? What What is that like about your perspective on life? What does that do for you? Hmm. Well, there's a couple of things, I suppose, a few things. Uh, one of them was last year. Sorry, this is going off on a tangent because I'm a tangential yeah, sort of person. me too. <laughs> one of them was why well, I'm out, out here, it's two degrees and there's a sheep just over there. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, that was, was doing a job last year as well with uh, time lapsing in the middle of a sheep paddock, <laughs> and it was every now and then in the darkness you'd hear. Meh. I love sheep. <laughs> uh, but normally, <laughs> it, it's actually just watching, especially I, I suppose the when you see the Milky Way core rising, it's it's watching the emu in in the sky, uh, as they call it. The uh, the where we've got, I suppose. The, where we've got 200 to 500 billion stars in the Milky Way and we, we realise how small we are compared to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it's a very humbling sort of experience, Notice, noting that, hey, Antares, which is um, one of the key features in the Milky Way core, is that many times larger than our sun. And all of these stars basically, uh, I suppose, 
maybe maybe similar sizes to to our sun, or they can be smaller or larger, but they're much bigger than the Earth anyway. Right. And there's that many hundreds of billions of them out there, and that's just in our galaxy. And then you think how many billions of galaxies there are on top of that as well. I think of this sometimes very late at night, and honestly, it just makes my head explode. So there is an infinite number of universes, is that correct? Oh, the, then that goes into another theory as well, <laughs> which we can go on for hours about, I think, talking about how many possible, if you're thinking about parallel universes yeah. on top yeah. of the number of galaxies that we have. So, so are you believe, a believer of the parallel universe? So we've, we have gone off on a tangent, but let's yeah, just go I, there. I think it's quite potential. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, and, and the thing is, is that for... Going back a little bit as well, it's it's actually understanding that we don't know so much about space as well, mm. because I, I think last year I think the uh, um, the with the I think it's called ASCAP, which is Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, uh, did I think it was a thirty hour hour I suppose image or something I can't remember exactly how many hours the imaging was, but they then mapped out I think it was a several hundred billion stars out of that basically <laughs> within which is more than anyone's mapped within that period of time before i've written down the materials around here somewhere unfortunately i don't have it in front of me currently but it's gathered so much information that we didn't have before and we just keep learning more and more about uh, the stars and space each year and it's um, and it's just mind-blowing how much we don't know and we're, we're, I suppose, making the assumptions or learning about every, every year. Yeah. It, and so, so you've said it, it's a humbling experience being under those stars. And when you're out there, like often are you out there alone? Um, probably about 90% of the time uh -huh. except for the sheep. R right. Okay. Uh, um, d d do you feel alone or do you feel like you're part of like do you feel connected to to the world to the universe to yeah. the stars i think i feel probably most of the time i feel connected to the stars mm. so it it's not really feeling lonely out there most of the time i mean it might feel that i'm i'm quite small and relatively compared to everything around me uh and it's not saying that i don't matter but the thing is is that my 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 issues and so on uh, somewhat smaller after uh, after being out there. Yeah, right. Amazing. And did you name the sheep? <laughs> no, I couldn't find it in the dark. But I mean, there were plenty wandering around. <laughs> it's just that I couldn't hop back into the car either. So I think it was about two degrees uh, Celsius at that point of time. Right. But I couldn't hop back into the car because the that would actually have affected the time lapses. Because when as soon as you open the car, the lights go on. Yes, and it basically wrecks everything. It does. I, I saw a time lapse uh, on your Insta where there was cars going through it, and it's yeah. like, is there? Um, and I guess you can't stop the cars of tourists going th through. But for photographers, and I guess emerging photographers who are wanting to photograph the night sky, obviously there are popular spots where there will be other photographers, or you'll be um, part of a workshop or something. Is there etiquette around astrophotography? Well, I, I suppose there is in a roundabout sort of way. Um, is that ultimately everyone, if you're aware that other people are around, is that you're much more careful with your lights. Mm. 
So therefore, if you're driving a car, you typically don't turn your headlights on high beams and, and ruin it for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and you don't typically flash lights or, or stand in front of someone's camera, which I've had happen to me quite a few times. <laughs> I, I, I block your time lapse that you were doing for four mm. days. Someone just mm. stands there, right? Okay. Mm. I even didn't – that happened to me with a normal time lapse, actually. I was at a – a very public location and there was someone who another photographer who quite literally planted themselves one meter in front of me and started taking photos <laughs> yeah. but that wasn't even astrophotography for uh time lapsing but generally speaking uh when when people are in workshops is that people are generally very courteous of everyone uh because that's it's, it's Probably with a lot of workshops, that's one of the first things that that gets brought up. Please don't flash your lights around all over the place, because you can mess things up for everyone. And LCD screens are they a problem for you know long exposures? Um, sometimes. Mm. So therefore, e even the little red LED on your on the camera, basically saying that the camera is doing something, can be an issue. Yeah, right. So I was once taking a uh, a time lapse at a location and we and I actually had a camera hidden behind an obstacle in front of me and you could see the big red light flashing all ah. over behind the rock uh, and I've also been to another location where you where it was strict requirement you actually had to tape up all of your LED lights I was just going to say that no so, lights coming out at all so if you want to turn up to a workshop and be the the good person would you tape up all the little um lights and maybe tape up your LCD screen so that you, it's not flashing on when the, the image is done? Uh, you, well, you could turn off the, the LCD mm. screen for the previews and so on. Mm. But that, generally speaking, for a workshop, I wouldn't require that. Right. Because in the scheme of things, workshops are primarily there for people to learn yeah. and so they need to be able to learn somehow. Uh, but I've been in environments where I've, I think a Hoodman loop mm. Not, not going too much into product <laughs> is is sometimes recommended because it since it's actually you place it over the back screen and uh, you can see the screen but it basically limits how much light comes out of it yeah so that that'd be ideal uh, and I think the hoodman loop they're not a sponsor of the show I just think they're a great product mm. I recommend the, those for anyone who wants to uh, who doesn't want to shoot tethered and they're shooting outside and really want to be able to see exactly what your image looks like that's if you're shooting with a DSLR rather than a mirrorless um, they're fantastic for that sort of thing so it doesn't sound like you've shifted to uh, mirrorless yet Michael no I've got at least one mirrorless mm -hmm. I say that at least one because I actually have another one which I don't tend to use because yeah. it's a it's a specialized mirrorless it's a it's an underwater mirrorless camera wow. which I think sits on the shelf now because I think I got water inside it so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> underwater didn't quite work so well but I, I do have one mirrorless camera so far yeah. I've got a Canon EOS R mm -hmm. uh, I have been thinking about buying something like an R5 as well because especially doing a lot of or even even one of the Sony A7S threes or something like that, because I've been doing a lot more video work as yep. well. So I've find, been finding that the mirrorless works quite well for for doing video work. And uh, but I haven't gone down the path of getting one of the more expensive mirrorless cameras yet, because as a night sky time lapser, I actually need more camera bodies rather than high quality camera bodies. 
All right, so let's so let's get into the time lapse. Flowers at the moment. Let's get into the time lapse then. So, um, mm-hmm. how how in a nutshell, how are you doing the, those? Because they're brilliant, and it's uh, turned out to be uh, very successful for you. Because it looks like you've picked up uh, a, a lot of gigs out of it, and the work has been featured in some amazing uh, locations and documentaries. So, tell us tell mm. us about the time lapse. So time lapse is basically uh, just an, as an indication of the night sky time lapsing side of things is uh, just roughly because uh, it will vary based on what you're doing. Six hours worth of on field time with one camera equals about thirty seconds worth of time lapse. Wow! So therefore, that's why more camera bodies is better because it means you can capture more output for less time. Right. Otherwise, you get really, really. Uh, you know, if you go out and you only have, say, one camera on a job, then you go, well, that didn't work properly. So, <laughs> uh, so it might end up very, very poorly for you. Uh, so there is a lot more, uh, I suppose, planning regarding the time lapses because the, the stars are highly predictable in terms of where they'll be. So you work out where, uh, I suppose, if it's a motion time lapse, where are you going to move the camera direction when you're um, in terms of where do you want it to end up or where do you want it to start? Do you want it to do, I suppose, like a video, or like a reveal around an object? Uh-huh. So, so just the like motion. just motion, what, 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 how, how does that work and what sort of equipment do you need to create a motion time lapse as opposed to a static one where you just point the camera at one thing and take a time lapse over you know a number of hours so the motion time lapse the uh i suppose you can either use things like a rotator so it goes say pans from left to right or it can tilt up and down or you can be using a slider uh-huh. so my slider is now keeps on growing <laughs> Uh, it, it's actually about three meters long now in terms of how long it can go. Oh my God. And it will have a rotating and tilt head on top of it as well. So it it's provides something called a, a three-axis time-lapse. So you're going from so, left to right or right to left and then up and down and... So, yeah, so it can go... It can. I think the word's called trucking. So you, you, you do move it from, say as if you were stepping from left to right uh-huh. and then you can turn it left to right yeah. and then you can have it tilting up and down and you can have it doing various changes to that in the middle of the time lapse as well. So you can start by, I suppose, having it go, say, halfway before it starts panning, for example, halfway along the slider before it starts panning or tilting. Yeah. So you can actually program all of that into it. And and, and so I guess you have to have an understanding of how um, everything else works, like the you know how the the world's turning and the the sunset, all of that. You, you is there a way to calculate all of that? Uh, um, I've been using a combination of uh, I suppose things like your apps like Photo Pills uh-huh. and Sky Safari because they will show you where these things are. Uh, where the, each object will be at certain times. So sometimes I'll actually have a, 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 a piece of paper and I'll actually write out all the mathematics behind it. It's actually not as difficult as writing out all the mathematics, but I actually, I actually write out how, what angles things will be at certain times of the night. So therefore I know where the camera, I want the camera to be pointing at certain time, points of time at the night for that. 
It sounds complicated to me. Like, it, is it's it? actually, no, it's not as complicated as, as it sounds. Yeah. Um, it, it can actually be, it can actually be fairly simple, but I suppose you, if it's a paid job, then you frequently want to take as much guesswork out of it as possible. Right. Because you don't want to be driving for two days, stay up all night and then come back with, oh, I missed it. Yeah, that was not exactly what the client wanted. Yeah, and right. The, and the uh, and it falls to pieces because they say, oh, no, you go back and do it again. <laughs> so typically how much pre-production is involved in a, uh, a big gig like that where you've been asked to do, say, you know, a 30... So hang on, you said six hours of images relates to 30 seconds of time lapse? What's yes. Yeah, wow. And it also varies as well because some of the time lapses we do... I say we when it's just me, but uh, but the we actually goes into another thing maybe later on. But the, um, the some of the time lapses will actually start when it's still daylight. So you can actually be man. Uh, sometimes I'll be manually adjusting the exposures uh -huh. as the time lapse is going. Yeah, and that's uh, that's called bulb ramping, where you you actually say okay, it starts off with say an aperture ISO and shutter speed of such and such, but it will actually change while the expo as the time lapse is going across. Okay, so for everyone who's listening that's thinking, okay, this sounds exciting, but perhaps we shouldn't go and try and uh, trek over to WA and get the Milky Way uh, as the first time lapse. Is there is there a simple time lapse that we can do to just sort of, um, you know, as 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 something fun for a beginner, and yep. and what would you so recommend as settings and things like that? A, a simple time lapse might be quite literally just be over a freeway, for example. So you're actually what, or even by the side of the road. So if you're over the freeway watching, say, I suppose the lights of the cars moving back and forth. Mm -hmm. So you'd you'd want at least a uh, at least say, a quarter of a second sort of exposure or something along those lines basically to show the some motion yeah. blur. Uh, so if you actually had, say, one eight thousandth of a, of a second, that tends to be a little bit stuttery. Yeah. Uh, and then your interval would actually be, to be honest, a lot of it is actually a little bit of playing around. So uh, if you're doing something like a half a second shutter, then you might have, say, a one or two second interval basically. So you don't have too large a gap between the car lights between one spot and the next. Is is there a is there a rule of thumb for time lapse that you do like you know it's this many frames to this shutter speed or is there a way to calculate that? Well, I, I suppose the this many frames to a shutter speed. Um, you're typically working towards say twenty five frames per second, right? because it comes out as a video and either in 24 frames per second or 25 or 30 frames per second, I typically work to about 25 frames per second. Yep. Um, but watching the actual, the interval itself, the interval between one thing and the next, one shot and the next, actually depends on what you're looking at. So if you're watching clouds, Clouds, for example, might be moving slow or they might be moving fast. So my interval, if they were moving fast, if the clouds were moving fast and I was time-lapsing clouds, my interval might be things like one every two seconds. But if the clouds are moving slowly, then I might be doing one, one shot every eight seconds as an example. 
All right. But if you actually took one shot every 30 seconds, then it starts becoming quite stuttery. Right. I mean, I suppose you could be using a similar rule to what you do with video with the 180 rule. Yep. So you actually have your your half half of your uh, interval should be your, your shutter duration. Yeah, right. But it doesn't need to be that way. Otherwise, I'd be out there for 12 hours of time to get 30 <laughs> seconds worth of time lapse. All right. So we've got, like, uh, currently, as we're recording this uh, this interview, uh, most of Australia is in lockdown again. Uh, and uh, so – and. I know that there's a lot of people around the world that are like, you know, not not able to get to a remote location, but maybe they just want to try this uh, on a tabletop at home to do a time lapse. Is there something you could do inside? Have you got ideas for a time lapse? Like, you know, if you just say if you were uh, wanting to do a time lapse of a flower um, yep. opening okay, so a bud even, or something like that. Even time lapse the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So if you're out, uh, I suppose, cooking or preparing a meal, for example, you could be doing, say, a half-second shutter. Yep. So you get some motion blur of yourself moving around, uh, and you'd be taking, and maybe take one shot every one to two seconds. Yep. And basically, and then put it together in a movie. Basically, after that, some cameras automatically can put them out into a movie format. Um, I don't think mine do. <laughs> the, no, I use uh, I use Adobe Premiere or, or PowerDirector or, or there's quite a number of different software packages that can put it together in a movie. I think QuickTime does it as well. The, the iPhone does it. You know, most smartphones have a time lapse yep. as well. So you could pr- even try that. Just put the phone on a, a stand and away you go just to, to yep. get a sense of, of it. And then, of course, as you get into it and get more addicted, then you'll end up you know, calling you and going, right, when's your next uh, workshop, Michael? <laughs> I think that's actually what I used to do. I used, When I was working in the bank, I'm not saying this is what I did all the time working uh-huh. in the bank, but I used to put the, the <laughs> my phone to the window yeah, and, and there were cranes outside and I'd just have them time-lapsing the cranes, for example, moving back and forth. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you say, yeah, just keep practising because, I mean, you don't really want to be wasting all your shutters when you're just experimenting too much. Yeah. Uh, because it can be, I mean, I, I did a, uh, a job the other day and I think I used up 6,000 shutters between oh three cameras. God. So you go through cameras when you're doing time-lapse. You have the potential. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. I mean, and but that, that job with the 6,000 plus shutters, in fact, it was more than that. 6,000 was just how many I used at the end of the day. Yeah. Is that it was a combination of one shot every... 15 to 20 seconds on two cameras and then one shot every two seconds on another camera but just focused on different parts of the construction because you would like people nailing things into things which because you know that they aren't going to be there for too long so you need to get as much footage out as possible yeah and time time lapses of studio sessions look great as well so you just set set it up in the corner where no one's going to knock it and just like up high and you can do the the uh, the build of the set, uh, setting up the lights, and then the the clients coming on and going off. So if you've got a full day shoot, you can you know condense that into a time lapse and uh, you know share that on your social media. It can look it can look really good. So there's there's lots of options if you can't get out to uh, photograph the Milky Way. So all right. Interestingly enough, sorry. Yeah. The, um, I did time lapse some flowers blooming before, and right. they all bloomed within fifteen minutes. However. On the flip side is that I'm, I want to photograph, I want to time-lapse some fungus growing. But apparently that takes 
like five to 30 days. As in fungus, as in a mushroom growing? Yeah. Wow. Fungus, yeah, mushrooms. So what I've been watching a few tutorials here and there yeah. uh, and going, well, hang on, in order to do that, because you need consistent lighting for it as well, you actually need to build a shed or something yes. with, with the, the right lights for it to grow yep. and actually have a time-lapse camera in there. And you'd probably want dew heaters as well so you don't actually have fogging on your lens lenses. And I guess you probably have to worry about fungus growing in your camera too. Oh, right. So that's a kind of like I guess if you're into this, uh, when you trade up your camera, you keep the older model to do this sort of stuff that you can just keep it set up and do. So you said you did the flowers blooming. Was that a fun exercise? Uh, yes. I've wanted yeah, to the, do that um, for ages. It was actually because I thought I had to wait a lot earlier than that and I was there an hour beforehand, but the flowers, these flowers only actually start opening up as soon as the sun hit them. Oh, how beautiful. So therefore, uh, I, I've learned since then I'd actually have, uh, I suppose, a slightly setting, different settings to what I was then because I actually wanted shallow depth of field as well. Uh -huh. So I was using a 50 mil at, at something like 1.8 or F2 or something like that. Right. So everything else was blurred out in the background using a neutral density filter to help darken it. So was this at and dawn? The, yeah. And so, so you're just waiting for the sun to come up, hit the flowers, and the flowers open. Yep. Beautiful. And then it was all over within 15 minutes or so. Well, that's a, that's a good thing to do as well, mm. That's the, you know, aside from the stars. <laughs> yes, as opposed to camping out underneath the stars no, no, and enjoying that, it. No, that sounds the, uh, amazing too. So let's get into that. Um, so the astrophotography. So mm. for anyone who wants to get into astro, what sort of basic gear can you get away with to as someone who's starting out and what's something that we can do maybe even in our backyards or what, what, what sort of conditions do we need to be able to photograph the night sky? Okay, so basic equipment is there are actually some phones now that you can photograph the, the Milky Way with anyway, uh, the more recent ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I like saying an Entry-level DSLR is perfectly fine, even with your kit lenses, like your 18 to 55 millimeter kit lens is perfectly fine to start off with. Uh -huh. uh, so I, I still have my first DSLR, which is a Canon 550D. Mm -hmm. That's just that's an entry level, fine. yeah. Yeah, and that's perfectly fine to photograph the Milky Way to start off with. Uh, of course, the if it... If you want to get a better image, then typically people go to your full frames right. and your wider lenses, but not necessarily. You don't need to have your wider lenses uh, because I've actually been photographing more at eighty-five millimeters nowadays. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. Uh, but your faster lenses will certainly help. So your wider apertures will certainly help in terms of capturing the night sky. Right. Okay. Uh, so, the, what sort uh, of uh, ISO are we shooting at? So, with just an entry-level DSLR. Um, at say with the 18 to 55, I'd typically go something like 20 seconds at ISO 1600 to 3200, mm -hmm. and at your f 3.5 as an example right. to begin with, uh, and that should provide a reasonable image. The harder thing, harder thing with the slower lenses, like your slower aperture lenses, is, is actually trying to get focus in the first place. So is there a trick to that you, to focus? Um, I actually love the Hoodman loop for that, actually. There you go. <laughs> Hoodman, come on. <laughs> so the <laughs> sponsorship opportunities. <laughs> um, so using your live live view with the exposure uh, simulation on yep. and finding any bright 
star is a good place to start right. before you even place it on your tripod. Right. It, you don't actually need a tripod, but a tripod helps because it, it's easier than using rocks. So is that is that <laughs> the, the other option, just to put your camera on some rocks to hold them steady, or do you use something like a bean bag or something like that? What What's the options if you don't have a tripod? I've I've seen people use water bottles before, but I've used rocks before. Mm-hmm. I've quite literally just put it on the bonnet of my car before yep. and said, okay, there you go. Right. Because <laughs> then you get your reflections off the bonnet of the car with the stars and then you get the Milky Way. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. I'd never thought <laughs> of that. So it looks like it's reflected into a lake or something. Mm. Yes. Um, the... So that sort of setting is good to begin with. But once, if you can actually see the stars with your your exposure simulation with your live view, then you zoom in on it, say, say uh, five, ten times once you've found a bright star, and you just seesaw the focus back and forth until you get the right focus. Yep. But having said that, if it, then you see some not so bright stars in the background, then you will focus on those instead. The reason being is that the bright stars will actually be larger than the, the not-so-bright stars. Right. So you'll actually have slightly better focus if you focus on the not-so-bright stars. Okay. So at first you're focusing on the bright stars, zoom right in, uh, yep. have a look, and then look to the stars beyond the bright stars and then maybe track your yep. focus back there. So you've got do, – do you ever do focus stacking with um, Astro? Um, not not that much. Sometimes with the foreground, I'll do a little bit, yep. but not all that much. Right. Because I think one of the uh, one of the images I sent you with the uh, radio telescope yep. was uh, 180 images in that one. So, goodness so me. So if I was focus stacking and and then stacking for noise as well, I'd be there all night. Yeah. <laughs> 180 images. Put. Yeah. Wha- I do have a life, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, <laughs> that's um crazy. So, are you doing um? Explain how – hang on, let's just go back to the basic That's settings. So we've yeah, got – Basically with the focus as well yeah. is that if your aperture won't let you focus like that on a bright star, you can either wait for your dusk situations yeah. where you see the stars slowly starting to appear mm-hmm. so you focus can focus on them then or you quite literally just focus on a distant object on the horizon say, even on the horizon or even doesn't need to be that far. I've used the Hoodman loop for that where possible. And the reason why I've had to frequently focus before it gets dark is is I've needed to do a lot of day-to-night time lapses where you can't just suddenly stop and say, hey, I want to focus on the stars now. You have to set everything up and everything just goes through whether you've got things working or not. All right, so we focus on uh, a distant point. And yep. then obviously uh, if you use autofocus to do that or manual focus, you set your focus and then you lock the focus by turning off autofocus. Um, yep. uh, camera is either on a rock or on a tripod. And then uh, shutter speed, did we say that, what the ideal shutter speed uh, was? The, for the 18 to 55, I'd just go, uh, I mean, while it doesn't quite meet your, your rule of 500, I tend to go to your 20 seconds or even higher than that, there is this guide or rule. And I think it's always a bit funny about calling a rule of 500 because many years ago I got asked to write an article about the rule of 500. I said, I don't believe in it, but I'll write the article for you and say, you know, put all your caveats in there, but you're paying me for it anyway. So (laughs) so I'll write something. Is that the, the, it's a guide of 500 where you have 500 divided by your focal length that you're using 
to say how many seconds that you can expose for. And the reason for that is? Is that the Earth is rotating Mm. at 15 degrees an hour. Mm. And the idea is that if if you want to avoid star trails in your photo, then you will want to basically use something like the rule of 500 to, to say this is where it would be practically without any star trails. But if you find that you're using a large megapixel camera, is that you'll find that if you zoom in, you'll see star trails anyway. So they've actually got this thing called the NPF rule, which is based on your pixel density as well. But I ignore that as well. But, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the funny thing when I've run workshops is that I'll say a lot of things, but you can ignore almost everything that I say because and explain why, is that there's a lot of experimenting that's involved. So even, say, when I'm not on a on a tracking mount, which I'll get to shortly, is that you even though my NPF rule might say I should only be exposing for seven seconds and the rule of 500 says I should be doing about 33 seconds on an ultra-wide lens on my full-frame cameras, then I might actually be shooting at 20 to 25 seconds because I find that being a compromise. Right. And and that's the thing. When you're out in the field and you're doing it all the time, you just mm-hmm. learn to... Um, understand the little sort of subtleties of the particular camera and the lens and uh and and everything and you can compensate for these things but it's in the doing is the learning right yeah and that's where you 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 discover all these amazing things so that's a, a good thing to bear in mind because you know you can go online and um look around and and there's articles that say no it's this way this is the only way to do it but that that they don't have uh your uh level of experience all right so we've got the the iso the shutter speed uh and all the other settings to to get a decent shot now if you are someone that lives just say in the city or in a suburban area what what do we need to do how far do we need to get away to be able to uh, get some sort of decent star shots? Um, I live, say, 25 kilometres north of the central of Perth. Yep. Uh, I can actually photograph the Milky Way from my, the back of my house. Right. It won't be a great shot, yep. but if I drive half an hour north, it will be some very good shots, yep. which is just on the periphery of the of the Perth metropolitan area. Uh, so there's a couple of things that's that's involved is the amount of light pollution that is from where you are yep. and also the direction of the light pollution. So if you wanted to shoot uh, facing west, for example, you would not go to the, for the setting Milky Way, you would not go just to the east of Perth to do so. Right. Because you'd be photographing straight into the mil- to into the main source of the light pollution. Right. But if you were photographing to the southeast where the Milky Way is rising, then you can actually photograph the Milky Way from just outskirts of the metropolitan area. Okay. But if you wanted to get an even better shot, then you go to darker places, which is uh um and that the brightness of locations is actually something called a Bortle scale. What's that again? It's called a Bortle scale. Um, I wrote down. I'm sorry, this is B O R T L. B O R T L E. Yeah. And what happened? And that's actually a scale that someone came up. I think it was actually only about twenty years ago, actually. Right. Um, whereby, hey, this is roughly how dark it is where you are. 
and the uh, so the Bortle one is the darkest that you can get, and uh, I think Bortle six is like if you're in the city. Right. And so the darker you get, the better it will go. So you might only need to go, say, 100 kilometres out or even 50 kilometres out of the metropolitan area to get a reasonable shot. Yep. I think the that photo with the radio telescope, which uh, I sent, yep. I think that's actually a yep. Portal 4 location. Right, okay, so it's quite bright. Yeah, So, but what happens is that since the Milky Way is close to straight up, up above, it's actually easier to see it as well. Whereas if it was actually setting down towards where all the glowy bits are, then you'd see less and less of it. Okay, so if you want to sound sort of intelligent amongst a group of, uh, you know, astro people, you just go, yeah, until location is like, yeah, but one on the Bortle scale. Does that make yeah. you sound like you know what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, so do you know any Bortle 2 locations around the oh, place? Like... <laughs> I found a phenomenal Bortle 2 or a 1 location. It's just here. So so basically, you got to get away from the lights, which is harder yeah. to do. Um, and hang on, we'll, we'll get on to the light pollution. Let's just uh, finish this thought. So getting away from the light pollution and then is there anything else that you're looking for in the frame itself just to make it interesting so we've got the stars that are going on obviously not everyone's going to have that that the same view that you have but there'll be something in the sky are you looking for foreground elements or um what else are you putting into the frame to give it scale what do you look for yeah so for me, uh, I'm primarily a landscape astrophotographer, so I love having something in the foreground in terms of a foreground element right. because that shows you, gives you a connection to the place. Yep. So if you just had basically the stars itself, unless you're using it for purely, I suppose, just saying that you can photograph it or, or it's just there, which I have done some before because I've been specifically requested to do that, yep. is that you want to connect it to something else otherwise you could be 500 kilometers away and it'd be exactly the same yep so from my point of view i love having something i suppose that the additional element of of place helps connect it yep and that additional like uh, i suppose saying of somewhere where something is um also increases the marketability of the image right. as well yeah <laughs> because people say i want to you know, if you want to drive more people to a location saying, hey, this is a play- great place to go, then then you could have that sort of image sold for tourism, basically, yes. for that sort of thing. Or people will say, I've, I was at the Carnarvon Space Centre or I've got people related to Carnarvon Space Centre, so I want that image that you, you've took with the big ra- uh, radio telescope. Right. As opposed to just the stars itself. So, yeah, the, the foreground is certainly important. In, in my opinion. Something interesting there. And then you've got your background element, which is the stars. And then often you will put yourself or someone in the frame as well. And often you're by yourself. Are you still doing that or not so much? Uh, yeah. So I'm still doing that. It, it doesn't happen as often as I used to. Mm. Once upon a time, it was almost every single time I was there. Yeah. I had my selfie. Yep. But the... Uh, the, there's a few projects coming up as well where I definitely want to have people in the frame, uh-huh. and I've also been asked to put people in the frame as well, right? Because it, the they want to say, hey, look, this is what it looks like with uh, having people there. So it is a little bit more, I suppose, just like doing a book cover. You actually have the person putting themselves into that position. Yeah. yeah. 
So you tend to cover all bases. So you'll you'll do the shot with people in the frame without, so that you you're going to have. Uh, if it's a shoot that you're doing on spec, it's you're going to have more options to sell that down the track, right? So is that how your thinking is now going, that you've managed to uh, on-sell a lot of these images? Um, it's it's ultimately something that's always a little bit in the back of the mind. Mm -hmm. It's saying, where, uh, what am I using this image for? Right. Not just having a, a great image. Yeah. It, it's actually thinking a lot of, I know that I've got clients or projects. I've got more than 100 shoots on list on my proposed shoot list at the moment. Right. <laughs> the, the, uh, whereby I need to, uh, say, photograph or time-lapse Pleiades in various locations, or which is the Seven Sisters. I need to photograph Orion with, with a foreground element, Andromeda. I've got uh, the, uh, the Magellanic, the small and large Magellanic clouds, which I need to have in places as well. I need to have various locations, which are already pegged out. Uh, and have interesting things with those those things. So, so these are all jobs that you've got on the go, and and how long do they give you to deliver the? Because obviously you need to be it needs to be the right place, the right time, right mm. time of the year, and then the right um, time of the month in terms of where the moon is. Is that that that's important too? Um, yes. Yeah. And I do actually like the moon. Yeah. Um, the it's a little bit mixed actually in terms of the deadlines because some of them have got very specific deadlines like they uh, need to get this done before say end of June or something like right. that so that's the delivery date but what I learned especially from last year is uh, even after explaining it to clients look the stars will move and they don't <laughs> care about our time frames is hey I need to build, be building up stock lists of uh, I suppose stock time lapses or footage of various objects as well because I know that they will be used in future right. or I know I've got projects coming up like I've I've got I think three documentaries I'm aware of yeah. that may be using stuff yeah. and I need to be capturing things because I know what will be in those going forward if they proceed uh, but one of the main objects I was thinking about from last year was they uh, I got asked uh, can you time lapse the Pleiades and I said, well, if you asked me three weeks ago, given that this was already six months ah, into the project, I think, yeah. they said, I could have, but now it's not available. It won't be available for another five months or something like mm -hmm. that. And they said, well, that's beyond the time frame that we need. So, But I know that I need to start collecting those things because I understand the importance of, say, the Pleiades with, um, with cultural aspects as well, like Aboriginal astronomy. Right. Because there's all there's stories all across Australia, different stories about the Pleiades, as an example. Uh, they'd be, fa I mean, that's a whole other episode there, just to hear all those stories, Michael. <laughs> you know, so that's fantastic that you're starting to think um, in terms of stock and building that stock library, and I guess you're getting. Um, a lot better at anticipating what the client needs just by being out there and working with them more. Mm, yes. Fantastic. All right. So um, we've covered uh, the basics of uh, time lapse, the basics of getting out there and shooting. So just with someone who wants to shoot in their normal location, uh, do you recommend going on a new moon or a full moon or are there, um, are there advantages and disadvantages of having the moon um, in the shot as well? I like having a little bit of moon, mm -hmm. 
the uh, for a lot of people just beginning, uh, a new moon is probably the best way to go. Or even if you actually look to see when the moon rises and sets, because it might not be a new moon, but the new moon might not rise till midnight. For I mean, the next moon might not rise till midnight, as an example. Right. So by the time they've actually photographed, they might be finished before the moon even rises. But the advantage of the moon is that the moon actually lights up the entire foreground, so it actually creates a you can actually see the whole landscape yeah. depending on what your exposure settings is. Right. But the, the moon, of course, does have some effects on the sky itself. If it's too bright, then it will actually affect, it will actually reflect off the atmosphere and the atmosphere will start turning blue. Right. And it's just, I just like you said, just get out there and experiment, play around with the settings and, uh, you know, you get to see the results. You can go back the next mm. night and have another try and, and tweak your settings. Just before we go, Michael, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today, I just want to go through. So the cover for this interview is the shot with the uh, – is that a space station in the uh, in the image um, that, that you've sent through? What was involved in that shot? Okay, that was the Carnarvon Space uh, Museum. Uh -huh. So that particular radio telescope used to be, well, it wasn't a radio telescope, in fact, I think. It was actually used in things like your Skylab and, and so on, there, and a lot of space missions earlier earlier on. And now it's, now it's become a museum. So from my point of view, it was there was a little bit of pre-visualization in terms of working out where is the Milky Way going to be at what point of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, getting permission to go on site because they, you can't just climb over the fence <laughs> because people might not appreciate no. that. The, uh, and I actually had two other cameras set up in, in the scene doing time lapses as well. Right. Uh, but I actually had my camera mounted on a star tracker. Right. So the star tracker actually rotates at the same speed as the rotation of the Earth. Uh -huh. So therefore, the stars were pinpoint, and I didn't have to worry about your rule of 500s, and a panorama head on top of that. And I was quite literally just taking one shot and then the next shot in, in, in the panorama and then stitching it all together in, uh, when I got back. So it was 180 images. Each image was, I think, 30 seconds out of about F2, I think. I think the ISO was only something like 1,600. So how big's the final file? Uh, I had to shrink it because otherwise my computer didn't like it. I need a computer upgrade. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, 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 the final image, I think, was, uh, uh, I think it was about 45 gigabytes My or something goodness. something large <laughs> i can't quite remember and so you I had to shrink crashing it down your so it would actually fit into the into my catalog yeah right amazing so you get this super detailed super crisp mm. gorgeous image and uh it's beautiful that's uh i could talk to you uh all day i love how you get into the work that you do i love hearing you geek out about the work and i'm so thrilled that uh People are noticing, and it's, I guess uh, the lesson here is when you go into something with that much passion and dedication, it pays off. It, it just does. Um, so are you running any workshops in the near future because I want to come to one? Oh, well, officially no, <laughs> but yes, I am. Right. <laughs> uh, officially no because um, 
when my insurance came up for review this year that I got told that the insurer didn't want to cover workshops anymore. Really? So I said, okay, well, you know, if I work with things like your camera shops, which I did, and I, I also spoke at a conference last year, yeah. the, um, I think I've been asked to f speak of a few times here and there, yeah. is that I can't technically take payment for workshops anymore. Right. <laughs> because, so I, I'll still run things every now and then for things like your mental health and so on. Yeah. So, so tell it, us about the mental health workshops that you do, because I think this is a fantastic hmm. initiative. Well, I see there being a great link between the stars and mental health right. in terms of, you know, you, you feel humble beneath the stars and all your, your issues tend to melt away a little bit. Mm. Is that so? Therefore, each year, except for last year and so far this year, I've been running a workshop fundraising for Beyond Blue, mm -hmm. which is supporting mental health. And it was quite literally you donate whatever you want and then you can turn up to the workshop. Fantastic. So people were donating anywhere between $5 to 100 plus or $200. Yep. So, you know, raising raising a fair amount each year. That's fantastic. Um, and people got to learn because I, I just love teaching people where you can because it's about sharing the knowledge. Okay, so that's a great initiative and uh, hopefully like some other big company can take on the insurance and you can get out there and start um, doing some you know, more structured workshops as well. But there, there is the opportunity to um, go out on location with you. Uh, I guess the best way would be to follow your uh, different social media accounts. So what are, what, where's the best place that people can find you, website, Instagram? Um, I'm terrible with my website at the moment. I should hurry up. And have you, got, um, have you got a newsletter or do you, or how do you keep people well. updated? <laughs> I probably don't. Uh, Instagram is probably yeah. the best way. Right. Uh, I keep posting weird things onto the story side of things. Yeah. Well, not, not about my biological habits, but the, uh, uh, I do tend to post a lot more into the stories rather than into the actual feed itself. But um, at the moment, uh, Instagram is probably the better place so to go. So that's Astro Photo Bear, A-S-T-R-O. P H O T O Bear B E A R. All those links will be in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, Michael, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. I uh, congratulations on all your success, and uh, I will continue to be uh, in awe of your work because it is absolutely beautiful. And I know you work so hard to create these uh, magnificent images, and I'm fingers crossed one day I can get to one of those uh, workshops because I think it would be amazing to see that Thanks, part Dana. of the world. Yeah, I might add one more thing. Yes. There's a very special uh, in terms, I mean, there's actually quite a lot to it in terms of why it's special. There's a special solar eclipse here in Western Australia in 2023 in April. Right. What's, um, what's, what's I'll exciting tell you about, later on yeah. about why it's so special. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, apparently, the, the, the last time it was visible like this sort of solar eclipse was when it was only in the ocean, and the time before then was when before cameras were invented. Oh, so you're going to have, hopefully, uh, people from all over the world coming up to mm. see that, right? Yeah, apparently the whole place is already booked out. Really? In fact, it's been booked out years ago. Wow. But uh, I've got some contacts who have said I've got accommodation there if I want it. Right. 
the uh, so uh, but it's going to be a fantastic event and uh, in terms of I suppose having the rarity of this event coming along where somewhere on land <laughs> yeah that sounds amazing how exciting all right well maybe we'll all head down to to, to, to that and sleep out under the stars who knows okay thanks much Lee again Gina it's been lovely talking to you thank you Michael uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, I wish you uh, continued success Thanks again. Cheers, Gina. Bye. There we go, Michael. Go. And, um, yeah, go, uh, Michael, go. So good, yeah, go, so Russ, good go. to see him go from strength <laughs> to strength and how much he's progressed in the last few years since we spoke, last spoke to him. So yeah. absolutely love it. So, Gina, what are you doing in the coming week? I've got to uh, got a big big uh, photo shoot in the country this week, uh, so oh, heading cool. out, and then uh, another big cover shoot uh, coming up early next week. So big week of work, and uh, tonight Val, it's tacos, which is oh yum. So here's the thing with me: when I find mm. a favourite food, I do mm. it to death. So I know I have, to have the same. I get it. You you know that. Do you do the same? Yeah. Yeah. And I eat it practically every day for a month and then I never eat it again. Exactly. <laughs> Last week it was uh, risotto. Oh, my God. The old school way where you have to stand there and stir and stir and oh stir because no. there's the fast way. Uh, mm. There's a, uh, a food foodie called Donna Hay who did this mm. uh, where you do it in the oven. I kind of felt like that was cheating. I think the, You can do I it in the Thermomix. It's called hot, wet rice. So how's your Thermomix going? <laughs> Oh, well, my partner uses it a lot. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm get, glad it's getting a good run. What are you up to this week, Val? Uh, I'm in lockdown because I live in Sydney. Mm. and It's lockdown <laughs> so, light, let's face it. It's sort of, but it's still lockdown. So mm. we were plunged into a lockdown a couple of days ago and uh, for two weeks at this point, it might go yeah. for a little bit longer. Um, so that's fine because you can still, you know, go to the go do things yeah. well not really things but go to the supermarket and you know stuff i'm i'm not i i'm i'm not near the epicenter of you know where the outbreak has occurred mm-hmm. um uh so I, i'm it's it's pretty fine with me i'm 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 okay <laughs> i'm i'm watching netflix i am what am i doing um i've actually uh, started working out of a studio that is separate to my house. Yeah, right. So that has That's like a in a maker's new and studio experience. Yeah, yeah. So you're working so with it's... other artists, Val. Yes. So I am sharing with a potter. You know, mm-hmm. so a ceramicist. Yes. And so there's she has her wheel, mm-hmm. and um. And she throws clay and another artist who does metal work with brass um, and I'm the the painter. Fantastic. So, it's really yeah, it's a, good it's a to great be in that space. environment just to be around other creatives. Yes. Uh, it kind of it lifts everyone. So, you know, someone comes in and uh, they've got – like I've always been a part of shared studios. I love the energy. Mm. You learn mm. a lot. Even like you as a, a painter, Val, will probably learn mm. stuff from the potter, like just oh, and also sure. a different perspective in seeing things. So, you know, I, I guess not everyone uh, can have uh, – 
a studio that they can share with other uh, artists. But I think if you can ever be around other creatives, it's uh, fantastic to do. It, it really uh, mm. lifts you. I think, you know, it's probably my favourite people to be around. In fact, you know, when I finally got to university and went to art school uh, for the first time in my life, I looked around, I'm like, oh, my God, I found my people. I don't feel like a weirdo mm. anymore because I always felt like a weirdo, Val, in in school. <laughs> the school that the high school that I went to it was all about sport you know, it was either sport or being an academic. No one really cared about the artist, so we, you know, didn't really rate. But when you get to to be surrounded by your people, they just they just all get each other. You know, I think there's yes. a sort of a language people understand. Uh, you know, if you're having a struggle with creativity, it's just nice to say, hey, you know, when you can't think of something to put on the oh yeah, when that happened to me, and it's just it's like it's a lovely. Uh, energy to be around so that that's that's exciting Val and what are you working on I am working on my paintings right and I've yeah it's been really great for momentum and Mm. it's been really great because there are no other distractions and there's no wi-fi there oh my god I know I do have 5g Right. so there's that but still it's one less you know what I mean 5g so well, or four G or whatever G, but um, uh, you know, I I I don't feel compelled to bring my computer with me. Yeah. So I still have like a phone and all that sort of thing, obviously. But um, yeah. So it's really good for eliminating or minimizing distractions. And is this making you more disciplined? Do you think? Are you doing the like I'm going to go in like I'm going into the office, or is it because like when you've got time everything- will tell. Yeah, right. Because it hasn't been long enough yet. Um, so you are, yeah, you are me, big on the midnight sort of 3am yeah. painting sessions. So. Yes, yes, yes. But anyway, we'll see how we go, but it's been great so far. Oh, that's so, exciting. So, yes. Where do we find you online, Gina? So you can find me at ginamilitia.com. That's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. I'm at Gina Militia on all social media. And if you want to take your photography to the next level, then I'd love the opportunity to work with you. Go and check out the Gold community. So just go to ginamilitia.com and click on memberships. What about you, Val? Uh, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit GinaMilitia.com. 